Hi, welcome to Moments with Marilyn. I'm your host, Marilyn Boyer, the mom of 14 homeschool kids. I absolutely love encouraging young moms, and it's my privilege and my passion to share tips and tools to make your journey easier. We are continuing the series of forgiveness because it's such an important concept to teach our kids and to understand ourselves. So I'm basing these lessons on a talk by Milton. Um, just forgot his last name. Milton Vincent, sorry. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes to his sermon series. And he has some very valuable information. Okay, he's talking about how to get to the place of forgiveness. And we've been talking about that the last few weeks. We're still, we're going to finish up that thought one, the journey to forgiveness today. And we talked about eight thoughts. We've talked about four of them. We're on thought number five that we can think at the foot of the cross. He's talking about doing a 360 around the cross to behold Jesus suffering. And then the other points of actually choosing to forgive are much faster. Um, It takes a lot longer to get to the place of forgiveness. So he's spending a lot more time on the journey to forgiveness rather than how to forgive once you get there. So thought number five at the foot of the cross, glory to God, Christ has purchased my forgiveness and justification at the cross. Here you've seen the magnitude of your sin. Now you're ready to see the magnitude of God's forgiveness. Romans 5.9 tells us we are justified by his blood. Justification is an instantaneous legal action of God. Whenever you come into God's presence, he's sitting there. It's like Milton Vincent said, it's kind of like he's reading transcripts of my justification. And you go to Jesus and he says, welcome, what can I do for you? He justifies us to bring us into a relationship with him. On your good days and on your bad days, God always has you in his grace and favor. Even on your bad days when you sin against him, he might send discipline into your life to bring to make you a deeper participant in his holiness. But the power of grace is there. The justification, it melts our hearts into love for him. We kind of experience deeper layers of obedience to him. You know, God's grace far outpasses, surpasses our sin. We are recipients of his amazing grace. And we need to be, we need to teach our kids to be dazzled by his grace toward us. So we are then able to give grace to those who've wronged us. He talks about in marriage, you know, sometimes you see your wife's sins as a 10 and your sins as a 2 or vice versa, or even in relationship with kids. You know, um, your brother tripped you and you fell and got hurt. You see his sins as a 10, but you kind of lashed out and hit him. And your sins as a level 2. So, so if you see your sins as a level 2, you will have a level 2 experience of grace. You'll never be able to give to forgive that other person a level 10 of grace. We need to see ourselves as the foremost sinner in the relationship, and then we'll have a level 10 of grace to give. Matthew 18, when it says, How often do you forgive your brother seven times? Seven times? Seven. 
which means just as many times, even, even if somebody sins against you 49 times a day, you still keep forgiving them. You are to give them continual forgiveness. Now, not necessarily trust, and we'll talk about that later, but you are to grant them forgiveness. When in scripture, when he was asking that question, what he was really asking is, when can I legally stop forgiving? But we need to be ready to keep on forgiving. Man has been forgiven of a massive debt. Um, in scripture, we have the example of the um, unforgiving servant. He was forgiven of massive debt, which in our day would be something like $7.5 billion dollars. But he refused to forgive a man who owed him a tiny amount. In our day, it would be comparable to $17,000, which is a lot, but it's nothing like $7.5 billion. But this man, he forgot the size of debt that God had given him. $17,000 times $445,000 as compared to $445,000. It's comparatively microscopic in comparison. So he was forgiven of a huge amount and he was not willing to forgive someone else a very small amount. The sins we consider as unforgivable are like the $17,000 amount. They don't even show up when compared to the magnitude of the sin of the amount that we've been given, the magnitude of our sin, the grace that Christ lavished on us on the cross. So forgiveness, we need to learn to evangelize those who, who wrong you. When you forgive someone, you are passing on to them part of the grace you have received. And in a way, that is evangelizing them. Forgiveness, we said, is to send away the sin from between you and the one who sinned against you. Send the sinner away from the prison cell of the consequence you would give him. And favor them with blessings. Now this does not send him away from the consequence for his sin. God is the one who will reward him or punish him for his sin. But we are. this means send him away from the consequence you want to give him. And leave it with God. And even going a step beyond, we talked about we need to favor that person with blessings. You know, we will be sinned against. Maybe every day. It's been said that a marriage is a union of two good forgivers. We need to prepare our kids for their future marriages. We need to prepare them for kids that can be mean and, and picky and unkind. So the question arises, it is a high calling to forgive others, but how do I get there? What if I don't want to forgive? We need to be willing to go on a journey to lead to the place of forgiveness. And we talked about step one, which is go to the cross and do the gospel thinking. Transport you 360 around the cross. And that will elevate your thoughts from anger and bitterness to thoughts of grace. Number one, Christ has suffered as I'm suffering now. Two, sometimes God purposes that those he loved be painfully sinned against. Three, you're not just watching a man dying, you're watching a man trusting himself to him who judges righteously. God can be trusted completely in our moments of hurt. Four, I have committed greater sins against God than any man has ever forgiven, ever committed against me. 
So at the cross, we see the magnitude of our sins, and we see that we were responsible in part for killing Jesus. We're violators of the sixth commandment. The cross shows us the true nature of our sin. And the last one we did last week, glory to God. God, Christ has purchased my justification at the cross, and I am now receiving the grace of God. I now have the wherewithal to give grace to those who wrong me because I am awash in the grace of God. I'm clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. I am able now to extend that grace to others. Remember the seven-mile high debt um, that was forgiven to us and debts others owe us are microscopic in comparison. If we're walking around in a position of moral superiority, we never have the grace to cover other people's sins. We need to go deep into the hugeness of our sin. You can only give to others what you yourself are receiving from God. That is so key. And that's why God needs to build those deep grooves in us for God's grace to come in. The only place that we can see our sin truly is at the foot of the cross. And there we'll be able to truly forgive others. This is the power of the journey around the cross. The sixth thought, I am purchased and owned by God. And now I live to serve his purposes, not mine. Christ was not just purposing our redemption. He was purchasing us. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Life is all about glorifying God in your body. You are not your own. You've been bought. You are the property now of the Lord Jesus. It's a liberating truth, but you need to remind yourself, remind your kids every day, that's what my life is to be about. And I talked in another podcast about how we did, um, well, we called it the Kelly board or the Ricky board, the head-to-foot Bible verse board, which we made for our kids. We took a photograph of each one of them. We had it blown up into poster size. And then I went to the scriptures and I found out how to use from the hair of your head to the foot of the sole of your foot for the Lord Jesus from Romans 12 and 2. You know, we are um, bought by God. Our bodies are to glorify God in our bodies. We are not our own. And this was a simple way to help our kids realize that they are, they are not their own, that they are to use every part of their body for the Lord. And our book, Hands-On Character Building, has the instructions for making a board like that for your kids. What we did, we made it. I wrote the verses around the different parts of the body and I framed it, put it in their room. And then before nap time each day, I'd say, what part of the body do you want to do? Knees. Um, Then I bow my knees before my father and I would say the verse, the kids would repeat it. The next day we'd do another one. But after years of doing this, they had all those verses memorized and it helped them realize that they are not their own. They are to use every part of their body for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's just a really good way to help kids visualize that. Things that make you angry. In that moment of anger, you are really, were you really righteously indignant? Or were you indignant because that sin offended you? Um, it was cross purposes to your selfish agenda. Agenda. In moments of anger, you're offended and you're angry because someone has done something against my selfish agenda. 
he gives the uh, example of a husband who has Saturday off and he plans on watching football all day. So he sits down with his chips and salsa and his wife comes in with her honeydew list and she approaches him on the third down play and he gets irritated and upset and he's feeling wronged by her. But he points out, was she really sinning? Or was she just doing something against his selfish agenda? It wasn't a sin. Or the kids are arguing and he'd blow it off, but later they get so loud he can't hear the TV anymore. Is he upset because they're sinning? Or is he is he really wanting to help them have the right attitude toward God and deal with their own sin? Or is he just upset because he wants to hear the game? And instead, we should want our kids to make wise choices and not our own selfish desires. Or if your kids are misbehaving in public, are you upset because they're sinning, because they're making wrong choices, or because they're ruining your reputation as a good parent? It's at cross purposes with our selfish agendas that we often are tempted to get angry. What if you're on the freeway? Somebody cuts in front of you and you have to slow down to 10 miles per hour. Are you upset because a sin was committed? Or are you at cross purposes with your desire to make certain time to get somewhere by the time that you wanted to get there? Is this something that Jesus died for? You know, to get angry when dumb stuff happens, stuff Jesus didn't die for just because it messes up our agenda. It's so petty, so selfish, and we're losing sight of the fact that we are purchased by God. He purchased all our rights when he purchased us. When we are wronged, he's been wronged too, and he will take care of that. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And that's when we say release them from consequence. God will give them consequences, but we need to release them from the consequences we would like to give them. So each morning, we need to wake up and say, Lord, you have the right to rearrange my schedule and my life today so as to bring you glory and honor. There's going to be situations where I'm going to feel wronged. There's going to be situations that are only allowed because they serve your purposes for and through me. You know, it's hard to do. It's hard to realize everything is coming to you from the hand of the Lord. But you know, it's even harder if you live as if you own yourself. It's actually a very liberating way to live at the foot of the cross. But it, it changes our thinking. You know, that's it all begins with our thoughts. That's why we need to learn to think right thoughts. We need to dwell on the truth of the word of God because otherwise we're going to get all boggled up in the mess of our own sinful, natural thoughts. The seventh thought, which doesn't get talked about a lot, standing at the foot of the cross, it's profound. Forgiveness is suffering. It's death. It's crucifixion to stand at the foot of the cross. God points us to the cross and he says, this is what you're in for. You know, why couldn't God just have forgiven the world of sin? Why did he have to have his son nailed to the cross to forgive us? People sometimes ask that, but clearly, if you think that, you're not understanding the true nature of forgiveness. Tim Keller in his book says, everyone who forgives goes through a death and experiences blood, nails, tears, Forgiveness at first feels worse than bitterness. Initially, it feels worse. Forgiveness 
if refusing to, is refusing to make the offender pay for what they did. Therefore, you have to pay for it. Someone has to pay for it. And there's no consolation for afflicting it on them. You're taking the cost for the debt completely on yourself, and it feels like a death. You experience hurt. You want justice, but you must absorb that hurt in your person. God invites you to forgive, but when he does, he's inviting you into a crucifixion experience. When you cancel debt, you absorb the liability that someone else needs to pay. You release them from liability to punishment, which is exactly what Christ did for you. He gives the example of someone having a neighbor over and you saying something that upset them and they storm out of the house and they drive quickly out of your driveway and in so doing they back into your retaining wall retaining wall and it is five thousand dollars worth of damage so if you decide you're going to absorb the debt and forgive him you verbalize that to god you go to bed you feel good but the next day you wake up and you've got to deal with that wall you go out of your house you find the wall is completely damaged You've, you think you're going to go out and find the wall rebuilt. <laughs> you forgave, so the debt goes away. No, it's still damaged. So you need to get estimates. You need to pay for it. You need to absorb the cost to fix the damage the other person did if they don't offer to do it for you. When you forgive a debt, the debt doesn't disappear. It's still there. So in a way, you are called to a crucifixion. You are putting death to retaliation. You're putting a death to wanting the offender to pay what's owed us. In a conflict situation, God is looking for one person who's willing to die. Just one. It only takes one. Often we do just enough to maintain the moral high ground, so we appear to be making peace, but we're afraid of dying. We need one person who's willing to be crucified and die. It's suffering. It's death. We need to embrace the dying. So the eighth thought, death isn't so bad after all. Death is actually the beginning of life. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame. It was the joy set before him that made him willing to die. He had little thought about the suffering in comparison to the magnitude of the joy that was set before him. So it's just the beginning. Death is the precursor to life. In the scriptures, we're told he who saves his life will lose it. He who loses his life will find it. We're also told unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, goes into the ground, then it will bear much fruitfulness. But it's on the other side of dying that it will sprout up and a plant will come up. When we go through painful circumstances, we recoil. We don't want to go through it. But we need to realize that joy is set before us on the other side of dying. There's an entry point into deeper levels of life that you've never experienced before. Philippians, um, he gives the example where Paul, he said, I want to know him. And we say, Amen, Paul, the power of his resurrection. Amen, Paul, I do too. Paul says, I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. And he says, we say, you go, Paul. <laughs> we don't want to do that. Being conformed to his death. 
And he points out there's a massive difference between us and Paul. But at the other end of forgiveness, there's a deeper layer of intimacy with God. There's a deeper layer of spiritual life. He says you can actually get to the point where you're thinking, who else can I forgive? How else can I die? It's the entry point to life. And we need to walk with our kids through these experiences so that they this will become a reality in their life. In God's economy, death is the way to life. And the more I contemplate the gospel, the death Christ died is the death to which I am called. Come what may, I'll let no one take this death. Every time you're wronged, it's an invitation to experience something conformable to the death of Christ and to go deeper into liberty on the other side of death. He gives a word of caution. The idea of getting to the place of forgiveness can be abused because it takes a while. We might say, I'm on this journey toward forgiveness. I've been on that journey for two years now. And he points out Nancy Lee DeMoss says that's a myth. Forgiveness sometimes requires a longer process. Awful offenses can be long and arduous, but you don't need to be working through it for years and years and years. He said he knows people who are working, working through it for years and years and years and never get there. When forgiveness is viewed as a work in process, it seldom becomes a work in practice. Let me say that again. When forgiveness is viewed as a work in process, it seldom becomes a work in practice. You can choose to forgive at the level of your forgiveness at the time. But don't feel justified in drawing it out and, and saying it's going to be a long process. 360 at the foot of the cross, a better path is waiting you. God uses this to transport you to the place of forgiveness. The other mistake that people can make is thinking their emotions will want to forgive. You know, when you're done, any part of you, Jesus says, even the side of the mustard seed that wants to grant forgiveness, that's all Jesus needs is for you to have a mustard seed of want to forgiveness. Your emotions may disagree. Your emotions always follow. They're never right there at the beginning. You do have emotions, but not the right ones. The right emotions will follow after you make the right choices. So getting to the place where you're disposed to forgive, even if your emotions don't feel like it. Forgive in any way shaped by the cross. It's delivered in any shape that it can come in. So we're there now, and you've got that mustard seed of wanting to forgive. You've worked through this process He's given us eight steps. He said there could be more that you see at the foot of the cross. But now we're there at the foot of the cross and we're choosing to forgive. That is step two. All that we've talked about before is step one. Now we're at step two, choosing to forgive. So as I say, when you're dealing with little offenses that your kids deal with, it's not going to be a long drawn out process. It's something that they can do. You need to take them to the foot of the cross but it's a decision that they can make then to be at the place of forgiveness and to learn to forgive. Okay, we're going to stop here. Next week, we're going to wrap a lot of this up. We're going to talk about step two, which is choosing to forgive. And I hope you find this helpful. Now, let me just say, if someone's been wronged against in a very egregious way, um, in a later 
sermon series, he talks about um, you can forgive, but you're not necessarily forgetting. So we'll talk about that later. But let's end for here today. And next week, we'll talk about choosing to forgive. And we'll talk about walking your kids through that. How do we actually put into practice forgiving those who have wronged against us? Thanks for joining me today. See you next week.